So, according to your bio, it says that you run and founded the mothership in New York City. That's correct. 2005. What is the mothership? It's basically the place that I was looking to find myself when I arrived in New York City as an international artist with a dream to live and work in a community of other artists. And that's something I share with many artists from foreign countries. We come to New York City because that's the dream on the horizon. And we want to be where all the interesting people are who are drawn by these bright lights of this fabulous city. So I initially came to New York for my MFA at Parsons. And then I was looking around, where do I find this community of colleagues with whom I can create a setting where we all live and work together and support one another? And it wasn't that easy to find. So I decided it's like, I'm going to build this platform that I've been looking for. So it started, it was a gradual approach. Initially, what happened was that together with two of my peers from my MFA program, we started looking around for a loft that we could turn into live workspace. Initially, just for us, a place where we could be artists in a community of people who wish each other well, where we could have exchanges about why we're doing what we're doing. Because the reality is that coming out of art school is a really scary moment. Is You've had this community of people dedicated to the, your passion with whom you can share and who care about what you do. Because the reality is that when a fresh art student enters the world, the world, the world doesn't care whether we make art or not. So it's a common phenomenon that people have gone to school together. They move in together somewhere and try and prolong the experience of grad school. So that's initially how it started. But what happens with a lot of art students who come to New York City for their degrees, they stick around for a few years, but then they leave because New York is a hard place to live in. It's expensive, it's competitive, and it's not easy to plant your flag in New York City. Personally, I happen to be very stubborn because I have background as a marathon runner so I just keep at it you know I just keep at it even if it hurts there's a long story here that I don't know if I'm going to be able to share with you because it's the whole thing takes 45 minutes and that's that's more time than you have available for this podcast yeah that's a bit much yeah it's a bit much yeah but what happened is that I ended up in loft in Brooklyn that happens to have a big outdoor roof deck. And that's a great asset in New York City. Indeed. So we decided to use this roof deck as a showcase for our colleagues in all kinds of different fields. So we would put on spectacles of performance art and concerts and film screenings and music, you name it, on our roof deck. And gradually, that became a known thing in our local arts community. So people would show up to our events. At one point, 
I was able to get some more space for our community. So I decided to create an artist in residency program where international artists who are looking to find a place to land in New York City could come and stay with us for a month or two and meet their colleagues in the city and present their work to an audience who's appreciative of what they're doing and start to meet people and gradually put their own own roots down in New York City. And that, it turns out that there's a great need for this kind of place. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, so the whole phenomenon is kind of taking on its own momentum, and people keep finding us from all over the world. And artists who've, who've sailed with us for a certain time, they tell their friends in their home countries, and they keep sending us more people. So at this point, we've had artists from more than... Is it 35 or 36? I think 36 different countries who lived with us and worked on a project here and presented it in some way or other to our New York audience. And it's a lovely way to live for everybody involved because we keep meeting new colleagues from other countries and you get to see what they're doing. They get to see what you're doing and new collaborations spring from that. And gradually it becomes like an international family where once a mother shipper, always a mother shipper, and you can find your family members in other countries all over the world when you go traveling yourself. And it's also, in general, the people, the artists who have been with us at some point, they tend to return. Like a year or two later, they'll come back for another stint. And the way it works is that if we don't have an available room for them at that point, we have what we call the lifeboats in the lounge, which are or two couches. So whenever you become a mother shipper, you also get a lifetime subscription to the lifeboat. So you can always come back and crash. And then there's one condition, though, for everybody who comes on board. They need to graciously indulge my personal fantasy of being a sea captain. Because as you may have noticed, is the mothership is a maritime ship in my mind. Not literally, but just figuratively. <laughs> Not literally, just, just in our minds. It's, it has to do with my lifetime dream of having a life like Simba the sailor. So now I have a ship that doesn't sail technically, but it's still firmly docked in international waters. So the world comes to me. And also it's the idea that a mothership is a platform that houses smaller ships. So they come with us for a while and sail on our platform, and then they take off and do their other their own expeditions elsewhere in the world. And then they return. And then we all benefit from one another. And the New York audience gets to benefit from what our international artists present. Okay, but wait, my first question, though, would be, is it is Mothership NYC, which is the full title of it, I believe, is that is that a nonprofit or for-profit? It's actually neither. It's a place where we live. So, you know, everybody chips in for rent. But Mothership is also connected to the nonprofit organization that I founded, which is called Noosphere Arts. I was going to ask you how to pronounce that. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. It's a little bit, people get confused because there are three entities that are really 
interconnected and intertwined and it's not clear to people how they relate. I'm trying to figure out a way to, to make this more easily understandable. What's the third? There's a third. I'll get to that. So the first entity that came about was Mothership. And that just started gradually because I and my colleague needed a place to live and work. And it just grew from there. So that was never incorporated as an organization. Basically, it's a place where we live and where people can come and present their work. But then in 2010, I was offered the opportunity to show my own paintings in storefront gallery on the Lower East Side. And I go, this is awesome opportunity because the Lower East Side is at the time becoming the new gallery area. And I was realizing this is a golden window for all of my artist colleague friends in Norway who all want to come and show their work in New York City. So this is my chance to just invite in a whole bunch of them. And we're going to make this into like a 30-person show rather than the one-person show. So what I the offer was initially for me to use this platform for one person, my own work for a month. But I was able to hang on to it for four months to put all these 30 Norwegian artists on display. And what came out of that initiative was a lot of positive attention. We got a lot of press write-ups. We got a lot of guests. Uh, artists made sales and they made further connections into the rest of the New York art world. And then I was thinking, this is just so such a great opportunity. I have to try and hang on to that. And so I did. I ran this gallery space on the Lower East Side for five years with the help of volunteers who just showed up and wanted to be part of the project. And I'm very grateful that those kind people appeared because there was no money in the whole structure. Everybody was doing this as a labor of love. Somehow, by the skin of our teeth, we managed to hang on to that gallery space for five years. And a lot of international artists were able to show their work on the New York art scene because of that platform. I think we showed close to 200 artists from many different countries all over the world. Because initially I was thinking, oh, this should be for Norwegian artists in New York City. And then gradually I was thinking, no, it should be for all the international artists in New York City. But then at the end of five years of running a gallery space, I was really exhausted because it takes a lot of time. And even though it's fun work, it was all consuming. So basically, I ended up spending not just a regular work day, but pretty much 24-7 operating this gallery space. And at one point I go, you know, I'm becoming a gallerist. I'm not being a painter, which is what my true passion and profession is. So after five years of running the gallery space, another opportunity arose. And I was offered to use a warehouse in Brooklyn as my own painting studio. And I go, this is much better. You know, it's like I get a space where I can really return to creating my own work, but I still have the opportunity to invite other artists in to do creative collaborations. Like, it's the warehouse is incredible. I can't believe my luck that I ended up in this place because it's 
an old school New York industrial warehouse, like the cliche image that people may have in their minds. But in reality, very few of those exist anymore. Correct. Yes. Sadly. So in this warehouse, not only is it a huge space with high ceilings that allow us to do things like aerialist acts and people being suspended from above and all kinds of wild stuff, but it's also located in a plant that has a bird sanctuary sitting on the top roof, which means there's vegetation, plants, and beautiful flowers in this truly gritty industrial environment. And we are able to use all of those stages, all of those rooftops and planted areas as our arenas for artistic collaborations. So gradually, when our location changed, the programming of the nonprofit I started became different. There's no longer a focus on creating exhibitions of 2D work, which is what we started as. Now it's all about creating live events where artists from many different disciplines come together and collaborate. And because of this really unique location by the Newton Creek Superfund site, we are compelled to invite in artists whose work addresses basically humankind's place in the greater scheme of things as a means to think about sustainability and the crisis that we're in these days. So because of that motivation, my team and I came up with this idea that's called We Are Nature, which is a series of public events that are that combine many different art disciplines. There's music, there's dance, there's film, there's visual arts, there's poetry, there's prose. And it happens across all of these stages with the roof gardens, by the river, exactly next to the Newton Creek, and then on the rooftops where you everything is set against million-dollar view Manhattan skyline. So it's really fabulous. Again, I can't believe my luck that I just landed right into a scenario like this. You do seem to be living the sort of romanticized idea of an artist in New York, especially with your massive warehouse studio. But one of the big questions is like, because we all know, you know, New York is extremely expensive and artists have difficulty living there, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, how do you pull off like making money and, and making a living by so like you've got this massive warehouse place you're running this nonprofit potentially selling art like do like how do you cobble together a living in New York well you know i'm a hustler so i've paid my own bills since i was 16 and initially it's or what took me through my many years in school because i actually spent 10 years in college because i love school as an artist trying to find her way into the art world, I was lucky to have this gig where I was translating pulp fiction, German pulp fiction into Norwegian. And that was a job that I was able to take along wherever I was going. And it allowed me to have baseline of money while I was doing all these things that I wanted to be doing. But at this point, I've reached a place where I no longer need to translate. 
And it's not like it was a chore because I actually love translating. I love literature, but it's I'd rather focus all my the art in my life, creating my own and creating a platform for other artists to do their thing. And at this point, I have many different income streams. I apply for grants through virtually every day of my life. That was an exaggeration, but it's like I figured out, I got my first grant when I was 13 and I've never stopped applying for them. And luckily they do keep coming. And also my deal with my warehouse is also a wonderful thing because it happens to be owned by one of my major patrons, a person who has a whole collection of my work. And he is, basically he supports my project. So he lets me stay there for a rent that's not even at all the market rent. Because if I were to pay the actual market rent, it's there's no way I could afford it. So he's been a benefactor to me personally. And he's also likes the fact that I'm bringing in all of these other artists to do creative collaborations in his company building. Because there's also coolness contagion effect for him that all these young artists are coming in and doing extravagant things in his building oh yeah throughout my life i've had great success in like knowing people who own properties uh, because they they love it when artists come into their properties or the neighborhood where their properties are because it ends up sort of elevating the neighborhood in some way so like they have a cunning plan to basically like you know increase rent and stuff because artists are there but artists love it because we get the opportunity to have some reduced rent place for x number of years until it gets gentrified and we get pushed out but whatever yeah but it works it's a symbiosis that works and, he's, and I'm very grateful for this patron. If it weren't for his support, I would still be doing what I'm doing, but it would have been much harder and it would have been at the, the smaller scale. So every day of my life, I say, thank you, landlord. <laughs> I really appreciate your support. So that's also a very rare thing in New York City, an artist who loves her landlord. It's very unusual. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, that's true. You rarely hear of that. Okay. I want to hear about grants. I, I'm sort of new to it, like, because prior to being in academia and prior to being in Europe, in America, grants are not really sort of, they weren't, let's say 20, 30 years ago when I started, they weren't really that prominent. They weren't really that known. And, but mostly they weren't really that large. Like they, the grants existed, but they were like a hundred dollars, you know, like it's almost not worth it. But Having been in academia, academia has its own sort of granting system. And then Europe, Europe is amazing, littered with like stunning grant opportunities, but it takes so much work to find them. But what I, what I like is that you talked about the fact that like you got grants and then you sort of get that continued to, to get grants because that's my feeling. I, I haven't, I have no proof of this yet, but but I believe that basically the way the granting system, just like the residency system sort of works, is that once you get one and then that you leverage that one to then get another and then you leverage those to get another. And this is sort of the way you sort of steamroll the whole process. Yep. 
that's kind of how it works. Once you've received one, the next one becomes easier and easier and easier. It's like with learning languages. Once you've learned one foreign language, the next one becomes easier and you keep building on top of that. Yeah, no, I'm horrible with languages. No, that, that does that's not true for me at all. But hey, you're American. What can I say? <laughs> it is true. I am American. We are we as a culture are horrible with any language other than our own. And quite honestly, some of us are horrible with English as well. But you're doing just fine. <laughs> I, I, my father's a minister, so like I can, I can do this kind of speaking. And of course, I'm a teacher, so like, yeah, I can do this kind of stuff. But the, I mean, I love the granting system. Uh, I wish it was more common, and and I wish it was a little bit more transparent as well. Like, I feel like it's a guarded secret. Like when people get grants, they're like, "Yeah, I got a grant," and I'm like, "Oh, really? Can I apply for it?" Oh, I, I don't know how. I don't know when the next deadline is. Like, they won't tell you these kinds of things. Oh, I'll be happy to tell you. But it takes work, you know? Like, you need to do research. You just need that. It, all it takes is the magical powers of searching the internet. And the information is out there. Yes, I know. But, like, a lot of it's in foreign languages and things like this. Like, like And then there are lots of, like, so many stupid little idiosyncrasies. Like, I looked at, like, the U.S. Embassy small grants that they do in countries all over the world. The, every single one of them has a different criteria for being eligible to do it. So like, it, it's really hard because like you, you want the, you want to gain these opportunities that grants give you, but like, you have to be basically like super focused and say, okay, I'm going to do this project in Finland. And so now I need to find somebody who to fund it in Finland kind of thing versus just being like, I just want somebody to fund my art practice. Well, for that, you need to be a Norwegian artist residing in Norway. <laughs> <laughs> or Icelandic one living in Iceland. Yeah, I know. And it's like, and those wonderful programs, personally, I don't benefit from those because I'm located elsewhere and I haven't been part of the Norwegian tax system for many years. I spoke to this lady from Finland and she was complaining to me. She's like, oh yeah, the government only pays for my art supplies and my studio rent. And I'm like, I'm sorry, only pays for like, that's everything. Like if I had that, then I didn't need anything else. And like, what are you complaining about? But like, ugh. yeah. And also in Norway, there's this fabulous program where artists actually get money to show they get paid for being part of an exhibition and i tell that to my friends here in new york and everybody's jaw just drops how is that possible um oil money <laughs> yeah that's the thing so you know isn't it oil or is it geothermal what's the what's the large export it's been oil all these years but and norway is moving into more and sustainable energy options so geothermal is part of it too yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I, I'm very envious of it. I, I sort of wish I was born in Scandinavia, anywhere in Scandinavia. I'm not even picky versus America because like, I, you know, like I grew up with very romantic ideas of what an artist was and all this kind of stuff. And, and basically I realized that all of the romantic ideas realistically were more Europe, Scandinavia, this kind of region, not in America. This is true, but yet I was born in Norway and I chose to go live in New York City. And I think you're a little crazy for that. So, yeah. <laughs> but there's Norway is a wonderful country for the great majority of people. 
But personally, I'm not a particularly good match for Norway because I grew up in a tiny village in the mountains. And if you're in general in Norway, there's there aren't that many different options for lifestyles. There is it's a pretty standard way. City and rural. That's it. <laughs> and also in terms of how are you going to live your life? It's most people follow a pretty standard path in terms of, you know, you go to school, then you get a job and then you move in with your partner and you have kids. And there aren't that many deviations. And it's a very humble lifestyle as well. They're, they're sort of, I haven't personally been there, but I'm going off of what I assume. It, it, it's very humble like that they, they're like, just get a good job and just have enough money to keep your family happy and maybe have a cabin and there, and, and that's enough. Like no need to work for more. Whereas like, of course, I was raised in America where it's like, shoot for the stars. You could be a whatever you want in the world. And so we're always wanting more and better and bigger and more expensive. Yes. But also for me personally, I was an odd child. I had all kinds of peculiar interests that I didn't find anybody to share with. So I felt like, you know, when I was a toddler, I had this fantasy that actually I was a gypsy child, you know, like they ran through the village one night and left me there. And I just happened to grow up as the cuckoo in somebody else's nest. From the look of you, I'm going to say not gypsy. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't look particularly Norwegian either. Okay. I could give you that. Yeah, it's probably true. But I mean, from what I understand about gypsies, which please, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but I, from what I understand, they started actually in India is what is now known as sort of the Romas and the gypsies and this kind of stuff. So there's a reasonably, you know, dark hair, dark skin kind of look to that. I don't think you're gypsy. And I happen to be the only person in my family and the majority of my village that was not blonde. So I felt like that this is confirmation of my theory. All right. You know, if, if it makes you happy, you're you're gypsy. Let's go. Well, you know, for the like from my twenties and my thirties, I was a gypsy. I lived in six different countries. I know that feeling, yes. Yeah. But basically I just felt like this is some kind of cosmic practical joke that I ended up growing up in this little village where I can't find people similar to me in any way. And then you move to New York where there is more than enough crazy people to suffice. Exactly. But I didn't go to New York initially. I moved to Paris first and I spent two years there. And then the next thing that happened is that I got another grant that allowed me to go to Georgia out of all places. Athens, Georgia, in the in the south. Athens, a lovely place. So that was my initial encounter with this country. And during that time in Georgia, I made a friend who was from New York City. Okay, wait, when were you in Georgia? Oh, a long time ago, 89, 90. So you were there like REM, B-52s time period. Exactly, yep. I love it. Okay, yeah, that, that's my era. I'm all about it. Yeah, I went to their concerts in Athens, Georgia hanging out at the Globe Bar. Oh, so jealous. Yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, I landed there at a very good time. It was at that very peak moment for the music scene. But during this year that I studied at the University of Georgia, I had this very momentous experience of traveling with my friend to New York for Thanksgiving. And as soon as my feet hit Brooklyn soil, 
I knew that this is where I'm going to live. This is where I'm going to plant my flag. So the next seven years of my life was just about gradually putting things in place so that I could move back to New York City and officially plant my flag there. But that's something that a lot of artists don't think about. They don't try to do like long-term plans. They don't make plans and then sort of fulfill them. They they think that the you know the art world's going to come to them. Like I'll make magnificent artwork and put it on Instagram, and and people will find me. But that's bullshit. Like you've got to do the work and get yourself to wherever you need to be. Yeah, you've got to do the work, but you also do need some luck. You know, you need to run into people who can help you. But then again, that doesn't happen if you're only in your studio grading your paintings. You need to interact with people. And you would never have gotten a warehouse if you lived in Athens, Georgia. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it's being in the right place, meeting the right people, and being a nice person. Like, this is something I used to be an arrogant little shit when I was a kid. And, like, I I burned far too many bridges of my own doing. Until I finally realized, I'm like, oh, wait, the whole art world is is a, is a tr- community and they all know each other. And if you're an asshole, you're screwed. Like, even if you're incredibly talented as an artist, if you're a pain in the ass to work with, nobody's going to want to work with you. Mm-hmm. And it's also a better way to live. Just be a decent person. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. All right. <laughs> all right. Back to the stuff about the, the 501c3. So tell me the structure. Okay, so you've got Mothership, Noosphere, and you never. And the third one was the third one is Last Frontier NYC, which is the name of my warehouse. But wait, okay, I'm so confused on all this. So help me just geographically, physically, yeah, understand this. Okay, so Last Frontier is your warehouse. Fine. Noosphere is, does it have a physical location or is it just a nonprofit basically that sort of happens wherever? At this point, we see it as a mobile entity, but it's tied into the building that also houses my warehouse, Last Frontier NYC. Okay. And and then Mothership is in the same building? No, but it's close. Mothership is like 50 minutes by foot or four minutes on your bike from Last Frontier NYC. Okay. So they have some physical distance between them. So there is some separation and understanding there. I mean, because like I ran a nonprofit years ago and I will tell you, it's not easy. A lot of people think like, oh, you know what? Let's just make an arts nonprofit. Like making an arts nonprofit is a pain in the ass. It's a pain for sure. Just the application that we turn into the IRS, it was 80 pages. That's like the equivalent length of a master thesis. Oddly enough, I found that part easy. It's the running of it. It's the, it, it's the, it's the, like you think as running a nonprofit, you're like, oh, you know what? If we do good in the community, the community will support us. That's bullshit. You still need to fill in all the forms, deal with the government, you know, call all these entities. It's a lot of work. And get the good board members. That's the one that I fucked up on is, is I, I did not focus on getting a quality board members because they're your best leverage to writing better grants, getting more opportunities, getting other patrons, whatever. Like the, they're the thing, like no matter how great a program your nonprofit works, if, if you don't have good board members to leverage that quality of stuff, it, it's not going to work as far as I'm concerned. Well, actually 
it has worked for us for 10 years, but this is the moment. And, and maybe you have great board members. No, we don't. <laughs> but this is the moment for us to bring them in. It's like everything has been working by the skin of our teeth, basically my teeth <laughs> for, the, for, for the past 10 years. But we're looking to make the whole operation more sustainable. For the first time in Nose for Arts history, we have somebody on board who's great at writing budgets. That's my new colleague, Daniela Halben. She's great with numbers. That's not my personal strong suit. So I'm very relieved to have somebody who has more of business mindset and business background who can put our, get our ship onto the right course in that field. You love the nautical metaphors, don't you? <laughs> I just can't help myself. <laughs> okay, it's fine. Okay, but so, okay. So you, you, you've got all these different things you do and it's great, but then you're also a practicing artist. That's what I am first and foremost. Yeah. Well, that's the, the rub is like, is it really the, the, the first and foremost? I mean, as much as we all desire it to be the first and foremost thing, you know, it's the way we define ourselves. Is it actually the thing you, you put the most time and energy into on a daily basis? Yes and no. It depends because it goes in periods. It's like, for instance, right now, we're in the middle of creating the We Are Nature programming. So now I'm spending a lot of time running things, dealing with the artists we're featuring and promoting and doing all the admin work. But then there are other periods where I'm able to just disappear into my studio and not come out for a week and only paint. And it's, it's lovely. It would be magnificent. My studio is not large enough. It, it, yeah, I don't have a warehouse. And it keeps getting better because I also have teepee inside the warehouse. So I can go to sleep in the teepee and just wake up in the morning and continue where I left my painting. Now, okay, wait, going back to the mothership, what is the mothership these days? Is it a still a live workspace? Mm -hmm. It's still a live workspace. The way it works is that we are three artists who live here more or less permanently. And that's what we conceive of as the crew. And the crew is me being the captain. And then there are two artists who are first officer and second officer. And I'm the one element that just stays put forever. The crew members, they usually stay for like three, four or five years. And we are the nucleus of the ship's company. But then we have two spaces that are open for uh, visiting artists. One of them is just small room where you can only do desk-based work. But our live workspace for guest artists also has a studio portion where people can create their work inside the ship. When you say desk-based work, is this like a New York apartment desk-based work? Like there's all the, the room is only the size of a desk and a chair? No, it's actually, we're ridiculously lucky living in this old New York building where we have space. It's like people come in there and they go, I can't believe that your rooms are this size in New York City. Okay, great. I, I, you know, I'm just like, my imagination of it is not, it's like friends loft apartment, but more like the shoebox closets. Actually, no, it's not a Manhattan apartment. This is also a loft building that we live in. It used to be pickles and potato chip factory. It's not like an open loft anymore because I built partitions when I took over the, the space that's now the mothership. 
So we have five individual spaces where the crew lives and works. And then we have lounge for everybody and shared kitchen or galley, as we call it, because all the quarters have nautical names. Of course. And then we have big main deck, which is our outdoor roof space that serves as, as a stage. Which is stunning in and of itself. Like if you only had the roof deck, I'd still be like, that's fucking cool as shit. I agree. So again, I've completely lucked out. Well, no, you put work into it. This is the way I always wanted to live as a child, and it happened. Well, but you put decades of time, energy, and work into it. It's not luck. It, it's it's you know some luck, but not all luck. The way I see it is a combo. It's perseverance and luck. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, I know. I have perseverance. I haven't found the luck yet, but I'm hoping in the near future. <laughs> It'll come, I hope. I have faith. Yeah, you got to have faith and you got to be a decent person. Yeah, I'm working on that too. <laughs> sort of kidding, sort of not. But anyways, enough about me. Um, okay, back to your, your artwork though. So as an artist, you from what I've read, if I'm understanding, and I watched some videos about you on Vimeo and a bunch of other stuff. So from what I understand, so that you have people come in and do acrobatic aerialist things and pose for you. And then you paint the figures, uh, dude, mostly I shouldn't say all, they're not always. They're all naked. I don't do clothed people anymore. Fair enough. <laughs> it's been 20 years since I last did the people, a person with clothes. Okay. So first question would be, how do you find models for that? So are the models nude or are you sort of making up the nudity? <laughs> the models are nude. Okay. And everybody that I work with is somebody in my life. So they are friends with whom I have an ongoing relationship. And also the main model in my work is myself. So all the poses that I have my friends do, I also go through them myself. And it's hard work. You know, we put ourselves in really strenuous positions. It's like you'll hang upside down because I have a harness that we pose in. It's a workout session, but it's also fun because you put yourself in vulnerable position, but it's also, we laugh a lot. It's a way to try out how we push ourselves to extremes. It's like, how much is my body able to do? And there's like a risk involved because some of the aerialist contraptions that I have hanging in my studio are quite scary. You can hurt yourself. but most of the time, well, sometimes we do, but it's a very physical process. And that's important to me, not just in order to get the visual sources of my paintings, but even more so, I need to have this visceral sensation in my own body to know what it feels like to be suspended upside down and to be, be contorting yourself in all of these weird positions. Because to me, that's the only way to try and convey this in a convincing manner visually. Okay, but the thought, the one thing I wasn't clear on from everything I saw and, and watched about you was, do you like sort of paint as their live models or do you take pictures and then sort of paint from the reference pictures? I take pictures and I do sketches. And so the, my sources are pictures, sketches, and then my own visceral memory, my muscle memory of being in that position. And then also because all my friends, all my models are my friends, 
if there's something I'm not quite sure of, like how this muscle connect to that one, you know, I can always just go and squeeze them and I'll, I'll find out. Okay, fair enough. Now, I, I've often sort of heard stories about how like, you know, um, subject matters and techniques go in and out of fashion in the art world. You know, sculpture becomes popular, painting becomes popular, and then it sort of goes in and out of fashion. And and the nude and the figure is also one of those things. So, like, have you had any ups and downs or any even pushback about working with the nude figure in your career? Absolutely. When I started out with this, it was absolutely not fashionable. And it's also... For me as a Scandinavian, it's I have no issues with seeing naked bodies. It's just like that's the way we come. But being here in the United States, I do get a lot of pushback for that. You know, like a lot of people are uneasy about seeing nipples, seeing the whole thing out there. And especially, it's interesting, it's especially the male body that shocks people. It's like if you can actually see a penis in the work, that turns a lot of people off. They would never buy a painting that has a visible penis in it. Well, it also turns a lot of people on, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. But no, but here's the thing. It's like, I don't want my work to function on that level where people are attracted to it because of voyeuristic interest in seeing a sexual imagery. I don't perceive the work as that. If that's the only way you get the person to pay attention, it's they're not paying attention for the right reasons. So I don't see my work as, as sexual or erotic. I see it as sensual, or I just see it as matter of fact. It's like, this is how we look. I don't try to create a titillating imagery. It's okay, sure, there's an erotic aspect to the work, but that's not the main message. It's just the eroticism is in there as it is a part of life. But that's not what I'm trying to make the, up the main focus. I mean, I've worked with nude and semi-nude figures in my career, and I get a lot of pushback, but mostly because mine's photography. And I think there's a huge difference because, like, if you see a nude marble sculpture, there's a great appreciation for that because there's this long tradition of it, you know, Greco-Roman sculptures, yada, yada, yada. But And then, of course, painting. There's a long tradition, hundreds if not thousands of years of the nude figure in paintings and drawings. But photography is is not is seen more as of a, like a voyeuristic, titillating kind of a thing, and I find that really unfortunate. Yeah, that, it is an issue. But for me, there's also not an option because this is what I want to work with. It's that's what draws me more than anything else is the human body. There will be people who have problems with that, but tough. Then they just don't have to look. There are enough people who are interested. Well, I'll tell you, I, I went and did a workshop with Jock Sturges at a naturalist community. And now keep in mind, I'm you know the son of a preacher in Washington, D.C. I had never done anything like that before. So to participate in the workshop, I had to also participate in the naturalist lifestyle that I was incredibly scared of doing that. But by the time it was done, I was there for, I think, eight days. It was utterly comfortable and natural. And there was and the, I, I'm. I would gladly go back to another naturalist community, and I, you know, I hope to raise my children in sort of some naturalist ideas. I mean, the comfort level and the security and the sense of sort of just confidence within themselves, no matter what they look like, because trust me, there were people of all shapes and sizes 
um, were, was amazing. Like I had never experienced anything like that before in my life. Yep. I'm all for it. It's also the great equalizer. You know, there are no status symbols when everybody's naked. Oh no, they would still have like nice flip flops or handbags or something, you know, that that still showed (laughs) off their status, but still, but it was just an, an amazing experience to do that. Um, that I never thought I would experience, uh, you know, having been raised in a reasonably conservative household and a reasonably conservative neighborhood. Yeah, but Americans in general have a really funny outlook on the naked body because there is your Puritan element is still there. But then there's also, look at just the standard U.S. media. There are all ladies in very skimpy clothing and presented in a very sensationalist manner. But that's okay. You know, you just can't have the whole body in its natural self. Skimpy is fine. Nude is not fine in America. And even though that can often be much more objectifying and sensationalist than actually just showing ourselves the way we came. Absolutely. I'm all for it. I I don't, uh, you know, I like Europe. So like I'm all for uh, a much more free expression of the human figure than the puritanical American version. That's my two cents. This is where I want to live. So I'm just going to have to deal with it. And I am. I'm dealing with it. Well, okay, but but then that sort of begs my next part of the question, sort of following along the working with the figure, working with the nude and stuff, is how about sales? Like, so, like, again, so, like, America's a bit puritanical, Europe's less, less about the figure. So do you have, like, more sales in Europe? Do you have more sales in America? Like, is there any sort of sort of thing you can garner from your experiences that says – these kinds of, like I could imagine Parisians are probably really great with nudes versus New York City. Well, actually, New York City is an island of difference compared to the rest of the United States. This is New York City is not really America, Heartland, America. It's people are very open here. So in New York City in general, it's not a problem for me to be working with nude figures. And then I'm fortunate in because my dealer is European, but he's based in New York City. So he kind of corners both worlds, both markets. But he keeps saying that to me too, you know, that the majority of his other artists are more subdued and or like more in the abstract category. And he sells a lot more of their work. It's much easier to place, but that's fine. You know, I don't need everybody to like or be drawn to my work as long as there are enough people who are interested and that happens to be the case so i do manage to make sales oh i didn't question your ability to make sales but it's just like i wonder a lot of artists think like well let's take new york as a good example of this like a lot of new york artists think they're going to do all their sales in new york to people in new york and I, my personal experiences and friends of mine who've been in New York, most of their sales are to people outside of New York. (laughs) That's actually true. Yeah. Most of my sales are outside of the city, but it actually does help. You know, the fact that I'm a New York artist based in Brooklyn helps open doors for me elsewhere in terms of making sales elsewhere. I know. It's such a horrible little status symbol to be able to say, like, I'm a New York artist. And I love being able to say that. I've worked really hard to be able to say that at this point in my life. I'm sure. I mean, New York, it it, it crushes people's souls. Like, I, I personally have never lived there. 
I w- kind of wish I did in my youth, but I lived in San Francisco, so I sort of, sort of think that's close enough. But it, it is true. You know, I look at the people with whom I went to graduate school, and most people stuck it out in the city for a while, and then they moved back to where they were from, or they established families, had kids, and then they leave. You know, very few people from my original cohort are still here. And the ones who are are the ones who didn't uh, didn't have kids. Because it's really, really hard to be, it's a hard to be an artist in New York City, period. But an artist with kids to raise, that's almost impossible. Well, it's interesting because I think that, like it's a it's a these days thing. Like I think there was a time, now I mean, I'm talking probably like 1970s and earlier, that it could have been done, you know, but like major metropolitan cities, so not just New York City, but like Paris, London, Berlin, they've become so expensive that artists, it's very difficult for artists, A, to live there at all, much less have children and raise a family kind of thing in those very expensive places. And so that we end up getting pushed out of like these major metropolitan areas, which is very unfortunate because the major metropolitan areas really want the arts. Yeah, it's a conundrum. And some people make the decision that this life is too, I end up spending too much time doing other things or it's just too hard. I want a different lifestyle and they leave. And other people just stick it out because they're stubborn and I'm one of those. I can tell because you brought up you would do marathon running as well. Yep. That's actually running the New York City Marathon is a really, it's really like a love story with the city itself because you run through all the boroughs and then you can have your friends waiting for you at specific points. And it's just knowing that they will be there for you just with a piece of chocolate when you run a few more blocks. It's such a major encouragement. But what's really, really beautiful is the love that you get from the crowd because it's electric and they're giving you so much support. For me personally, I feel like the first half of the race, I'm not even using my own energy reserves. You're just being lifted through on this wave of support from the people. It's just a really, really, really emotional and wonderful experience. But isn't it a bit rough on your body? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, good. You know, at this point in my life, I don't think I'm going to do another marathon race, but it's given me a lot of joy and not only joy, but it's also, it actually works in a way like meditation. So I get ideas for imagery as I'm running. So it's a really important way for me to process things and to access a different state of mind where you're able to receive imagery. Sure. Yeah. I mean, sadly, I like I had knee surgery when I was like 16 years old. So unfortunately, all my sort of sporting kind of events like that ended very early. And I can't imagine running marathons at my age. Like that's just no. Well, you know, the thing is, we're not designed to run marathons. It's a really absurd thing to be doing. And there's a reason why the first guy who ever tried this died on the finish line. People don't really talk about that a lot. But that's, it's absolutely not, from a physician's perspective, it's not recommendable. But it's really, really an interesting experience. So I'm very grateful that I've been able to complete many marathons. And I'm kind of wistfully think feeling you know i'm sad that i probably won't be part of another race 
But running will always provide that source of joy and also a source of, like I said, it's an access point to a different state of mind that's, that's important for my painting. Sure. Yeah, we've all heard about the runner's high, I think it's called. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. All right. Are there any topics that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about? You actually pretty much covered a lot of things. Yeah, no, there's nothing particular on my mind. Do you have anything? I have two questions that I generally sort of wrap everything up with kind of thing. But uh, as far as, I mean, I have a whole list of topics of questions that sort of came up, but I'm not sure if they're incredibly important and some of them you already answered. I have one question. Mm -hmm. I noticed on your CV that you got a, a grant from the Rauschenberg Foundation. Mm -hmm. A huge fan of Rauschenberg and myself. I'm sort of wondering like, what did what did they uh, what did they grant you for? First of all, thank you so much to Rauschenberg for creating this foundation because he was an artist who wanted to give back to other artists. So the money from that foundation actually that's his own funds. So the idea behind the foundation is that when an artist who can point to being committed to their work end up or can demonstrate like a continued practice. If they end up in dire straits for one reason or another, they can contact the foundation and they may get money. So this happened in 2001 and it was right after 9-11. And I'd actually, I'd been standing on the, my rooftop watching the towers go down. And I was supposed to, that's a whole other story. We don't need to go there. But I had my first solo exhibit was supposed to go up in Norway just a few months later. And all of a sudden, it was absolutely impossible to get air flights, you know, like transport anything on via the air. So all of a sudden, it was 10 times as expensive to fly paintings over. So I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to go to send my work over for the show and go there myself. So I reached out to the Rauschenberg Foundation and it's like, look, this is the story. I've been working for this solo show for more than a year, and now I'm not going to be able to make it happen. And just about a week later, I pulled up from my mailbox my own self-addressed stamp envelope. As artists, we all we dealt with those back in the days. And usually when you get one of those, it's a rejection. So I looked at this envelope and I go, well, at least they were quick, you know? And then I, I opened it, and it was just a check with Rosenberg's name on it, signed. So I go, I can't believe this. Like he gave me the money and just like a week after. So that saved my exhibit. I highly doubt that system works like that anymore, but that's lovely. Yeah, it was so, it was so wonderful. It was so wonderful. And fortunately he's no longer with us, but thank you, Robert. Yeah, I had the dumb luck of almost meeting him. I, I was at school one day at the Corcoran, and I walked by this guy, this professor of mine, Skip. He was in his, the printmaking studio with, with a guy, and they were looking at this piece of art that looked sort of like a Robert Rauschenberg, and there was this other guy with Skip. And I'm like, I'm like, who's in there working with Skip? Like, they're looking at something that looks like a Rauschenberg, and they're like, and my friends are like, oh, that's Robert Rauschenberg. He's here making a series of prints. And I'm like, no shit. And then by the time I got back, he was already gone. So I was like, fuck, that close. <laughs> well, at least you breathed the same air for some time. Oh, Skip ended up telling us some great stories about him. So, you know, it was it was still nice, but it was just like it would have been so cool to talk to him. But anyways. 
he was a total good egg. So my chapeau and respect to Rushenberg. Yeah. I almost worked with her Richard Avedon as well, but that didn't work out either. But that's a whole other drama. Well, at least you're in the vicinity, you know? Yeah. I I am so close to being something. <laughs> But but I just can't seem to like cross that threshold. <laughs> Don't know why. Well, your time will come. Tenacity. Tenacity is the key word. Yeah, I'm I'm working on it. Yeah, no, it's like you know, having talent is not sufficient to be an artist or an artist making a life for themselves as an artist. So tenacity is like number two, and then number three is just luck. You need to come across some people who catch an interest in your work and enables you to go to to elevate you. All right. Well, that sort of touches on what I'm going to do for the last question. So you ready for the last two questions? Sure. Are there three contemporary artists that you're looking at that you think the listeners should be also looking at? All right. So I'll mention three artists who are also personal friends of mine who I find extremely talented. One of them is Hans Lemmen, who's a Dutch artist who creates wonderful drawings that are mysterious and weird and compelling. And you're not really sure what's going on in them, but it always draws you in. And he's also indefatigable creator. He just keeps at it. And he works in this farm outside of the major art centers where there will be chickens and dogs will walk into his studio. And sometimes they will walk across the canvas that he's working on the floor. And then those footprints will become part of the pattern and the work he's creating. He's also a very generous person looking to hold up other artists and always willing to enter into collaborations. So for sure, Hans Lemmen is somebody to take a look at. And then there's another artist who's called Shak Koji who's a young artist from the Netherlands who also lives outside of the main city center. But I met him because he's come to spend time on board the mothership. So he's sailed with us for several times. He's been here three times, actually. And I've been able to put him into shows that were created by Noosphere Arts. And he has a very interesting blend of old master skills combined with contemporary themes that are... They create jarring juxtapositions, but somehow it still works. It all comes together. So I'm very confident he has a great career ahead of him. And he's a good egg. So I absolutely recommend Jacques. And then number three is Barbara Fragogna, who's Italian. She's also very classically schooled. You can see she masters the technique of oil painting and drawing really well, but she puts it to use for very odd and disturbing things. It's Her works are, they're not pleasant. They're beautiful, but there's something really jarring about them. And she's also a really generous artist who helps her peers do their thing and always willing to enter into collaborations and also has an enormous energy level. She just keeps at it. She keeps at it all the time and doesn't give in because there are many moments in an artist's career where you feel like, should I just throw in the towel? This is so hard. 
but she has the tenacity and the talent that's required and she deserves all the kind of attention that the world should be giving her. Marvelous. And the last question is some advice, uh, preferably some advice you haven't already given. So some new advice for the next generation of artists. I think it's good for all of us to think about what does success really mean? Because you were saying earlier that for you as an American, you thought that success is always about more. You need to make more money. You need to be get more status. You need to just keep growing in a way that takes things away from other people. It's it's like it's a competition-based way of seeing the world. You need to be better than other people. And as I've grown older, I've started rethinking what is success to me. At this point, I have three yardsticks. You tell. Well, for me, it's like, what is success for me personally? Is one, how much does my life today resemble the dream I had for myself as a child? And then two, how much are you looking forward to going to work when you walk to your studio in the morning? And then three, how much joy are you generating around you by what you do? All good metrics, yeah. I mean, when I started this podcast, I had this very egotistical idea of like I wanted to basically I wanted to talk to all the right, enough people to learn the process of having a piece of my art put into the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Like that was that was my goal. I'm like that's what I want to achieve. Well, over the past two years now, since I've been doing this, I've sort of realized I'm like, you know, fuck it. I, you know what I really want? I want enough money and time to just make whatever I want to make. Period. That's it. Well, money, time, and space. Those are my three criteria. So money, time, and space to just be happy making whatever I want to make done. That will be a, a joy for me. Mm-hmm. I certainly agree. It's, I also feel like it's important to feel that you're part of a community where you're a valuable member that has something to offer to those around you. It's very hard to not only like find that community, A, become part of that community, but then to maintain that community. Like That's really hard. So then it's good to have a mothership because this is a community that kind of grows on its own momentum. We basically... Our ship that doesn't sail is just sitting here and we receive the artists coming from all across the planet. And it's a good way to live. I recommend it. It sounds very romantic and magical. It kind of is, if I, if I can say so myself. It really is, yeah. All right. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure speaking to you. I hope you have learned and enjoyed as much of this podcast as I have in producing it. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and so many things that I need to do better or more efficiently in the future. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your own creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Nebulous1966 for their five-star rating and comment. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. 
The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.